Welcome to the Weekly Insight Podcast, where we break down the noise of the week and help you understand the psychology of the markets with your host, Andrew Dore at Insight Wealth Group. Good morning. Welcome to the latest edition of the Weekly Insight Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Andrew Dore. Appreciate you joining us today. Before we get started, I do want to do what we do every week and just remind you that what you're about to hear today should not be construed as individual investment advice. Instead, this is just our thoughts and the firm's opinions on what's going on in the market and the economy. If you want to discuss how this might impact your personal portfolio, we'd certainly love to have a conversation with you. With that, let's go ahead and get started, though. The market rebounded this week. The fear of the banking crisis eased a bit. The news, I wouldn't say it reached the all-clear standard. I don't think we're completely done and out of the woods on this banking conversation. We're not. That probably would have taken the Biden administration raising the FDIC insurance limit. But it was interesting. Flows out of banks, and especially small banks, started to ease a little bit this week as I think consumers wrapped their head around the idea that the issues that were hitting Silicon Valley Bank and others have remained isolated. They have not become part of a broader contagion, and that's really good news. Now, I did see several articles this week talking about this idea of practical insolvency with banks as opposed to, you know, kind of literal insolvency. And what the authors were getting to is that due to the rise in interest rates, these banks have invested a lot in long dated debt over time. And that long dated debt has suffered substantially in terms of its underlying valuation today. So meaning if the banks had to sell these long dated bonds, they would lose money on them. That's a paper loss, but it's only a paper loss until it isn't. A run on a bank, much like we saw with Silicon Valley, that forces that bank to sell that bond paper and realize a significant loss, now all of a sudden that's when you start dealing with issues of insolvency. And that could be problematic for many banks, especially smaller banks across the country. But I think it's important to remember what the Fed has already done in this regard, because quickly after we had that weekend a couple weekends ago when Silicon Valley Bank failed and Signature Bank failed, the Fed announced the Bank Term Lending Fund, the BTLF. And this program is very specifically designed for the problems which sank those two banks. It allows banks to borrow money from the Fed to cover withdrawals instead of having to sell their underperforming securities. Now, they have to put those underperforming securities up for collateral, but that allows a readily available source of liquidity if a run were to take place. Now, is the problem gone? No, it's probably not. But, yeah, and I think you can see that in the market. In a week when the S&P was up nearly 3.5%, the regional bank ETF KRE was actually flat. It didn't really move at all. It's, it's certainly not a sign of continued weakness, but I also wouldn't call it a sign of strong confidence in the future. That's not what the market is saying right now. This is going to continue to be an item to watch. But while banks had a fairly negligible impact in the markets this week, I do think the focus then turned back to the story we've been talking about for a year now inflation in the overall economy. And I would say, again, the news was pretty good. It wasn't flashy, but it was good. You'll recall me talking many times on here about the conversation of PCE inflation versus CPI. The debate remains open, but the Fed continues to call PCE their main measure of inflation. Well, February's PCE data came out on Friday, and the numbers were actually better than expected. Core PCE dropped to 4.6%. PCE dropped to 5 
Those were a little bit better than the expectations, which we've talked a lot in the past about how maybe not even having good numbers is important, but just beating the expectation is important. So we beat the expectation and both dropped from the previous month. But what's probably most important to me, though, is those were the best numbers we've seen since October of 2021. So well over a year. These were the February numbers. So what is that, a year and four months? That's that's really good. And I think that what's also equally important, also on Friday, it's not just the numbers themselves, but it's what are people expecting for future inflation? We've talked on this podcast a few times, and Chairman Powell has mentioned it many times, that the expectation of future inflation is just as important as what's happening in inflation today. Why? Because it causes people to change their habits. It causes people to do things differently. If someone who's a manufacturer thinks that they're going to continue to see higher price inflation, they're going to do a couple things. Number one, they're probably going to stockpile stuff at at today's prices instead of buying them later. But number two, they're probably going to increase their prices to account for that future inflation. Consumers might do the exact opposite. They might look to stockpile cash because they're afraid of rising prices in the future. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think inflation is going up, you're going to act like inflation is rising. So keeping inflation expectations from getting out of hand is just as important as keeping inflation itself in check. Well, the University of Michigan does a monthly survey on these expectations, and the news on Friday was actually really good. Respondents are now expecting inflation over the next 12 months to come in at 3.6%. I would actually say that may be a little bit high, but what's notable about it, again, much like the PCE numbers, These are the lowest numbers we've seen since May of 2021. So for 23 months, it's the lowest numbers we've seen. All of this leads the world to a majority opinion that the Fed is probably done raising rates. And we can debate that. There may be another rate hike in May, but it's either we're done now or there's one more. We're not talking about several more rate hikes anymore. With that expectation is now that they'll probably then hold those those interest rates steady through the rest of the summer and potentially drop them in the back half of the year. We're moving in the right direction. And I, you know, I'd also add, not only are we moving in the right direction, we're moving in the direction that we talked about on this podcast, and we're moving in the direction that we wrote about in our memos back in our very first podcast of this year, January 3rd of this year. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that because what we talked about at the time was, yes, the Fed would raise rates a few more times, but we anticipated those hikes to end sometime between March and June, but that there was going to be volatility in the market until that process was completed. But once we got past that hurdle, opportunities would present themselves. That's what's happening today. That data set that we were looking at back at the beginning of the year is turning out to be fairly accurate. But we have some good news. That's wonderful. But part of our job here at Insight Wealth Group is to think about what risks exist in the future. There is a lot of potentially good news out there. Inflation is coming under control. The Fed will be done raising rates soon. It doesn't seem like banks are going to start to fall like dominoes. And so if those things are true, does that mean everything's happy-go-lucky? Here we go. It's going to be a great run. Probably not, right? It's never that easy. And so part of the thing we have to look for is what are the hiccups that we might be facing in the future? You know, one of them coming up just a couple months from now is this whole conversation about the debt ceiling. And we probably need to devote an episode at some point to talk about the debt ceiling because it is going to be important. Hopefully the politicians will not act like politicians and actually do their job. But one way or the other, we're going to have to deal with the debt ceiling issue. But there's another one that I'd like to address this week. 
and that's student debt. There is a valid conversation to be had about the cost of an education in America today and about the availability of credit for 18-year-olds who frankly have not been trained on what taking out debt means. The impact of the middle class over the long term has been difficult, but that's really not the conversation I want to have today. Instead, I, I really want to talk about what might be lurking around the corner because over the last three years, the vast majority of student debt payments have been put on hold. Borrowers have not had to make their payments. It's been wonderful for them, but it is about to change. The Biden administration has announced that they are calling an end to the emergency declaration around the COVID-19 pandemic. That's going to end in May. That means that loan payments are going to have to start up again. Now, there is some question about when exactly, but we know it will be no later than August 30th. That is going to be a big change for a lot of Americans. You will recall me a couple months ago, we talked about loan delinquencies in the United States right now. And one of the things we noted was that, yeah, we'd seen a little bit of a bump up in credit card delinquencies and a couple other things, but it was a bump up from historically low levels. You know, as we sit the end of last quarter, we find ourselves at the lowest levels we've seen on delinquencies in mortgage loans and home equity loans since going back before 9-11. We also see the lowest delinquencies we've seen on auto loans for quite some time. The lowest delinquencies we've seen on credit cards going back to pre-2003. So these numbers have been very good. The one that's been the lowest, however, has been student loan debt because the delinquencies are at zero because nobody had to pay them. And that's good news. I I think one of the reasons we've seen lower delinquencies on credit card debt and auto loan debt and mortgage debt is because people had the cash available because they didn't have to make their student loans. Student loan debt is a big deal. The amount of debt in forbearance is huge. Currently, there is roughly $1.75 trillion due in student loans. And that number is held over 43 million borrowers. The average balance is just shy of $29,000 per borrower, and the average monthly payment is roughly $300 a month. So if you take $300 a month and you multiply it by 43 million borrowers, that comes to $12.9 billion per month in student loan payments. That's nearly $155 billion a year. That's $155 billion a year that starting in August won't be available to buy new shoes, buy new TVs, take families out to dinner, go on vacations. An interesting point, that's roughly 0.67% of GDP. Now, I have talked on here a lot about the cash consumers have in their bank accounts today. It's an unreal number. Nearly $5 trillion in checkable deposits, another nearly $5 trillion in money market accounts. It's great news, and it's one of the reasons why consumers have weathered this inflation and this pandemic and everything else. Why? The government gave everybody a whole lot of money. We transitioned the risk from the consumer's balance sheet to the federal government's balance sheet, and we made sure everybody was flush with cash. That's awesome. But if we assume that the vast majority of student loan debt is held by those in the middle, call it the middle three quintiles of income earners, those kind of between 20% of the maximum and 80% of the maximum, that group controls about $1.6 trillion of the $5 trillion of checkable deposits today. If they have to pay $155 billion of new cash over the next year in student loan payments, that is going to chew through roughly 10% 
of their cash hoard. Now, it's not everything, but it's meaningful. Now, the story isn't finished yet. President Biden's student loan forgiveness program is still going through the courts. He'd like to just wipe out a bunch of this debt. Is that the right thing to do? The wrong thing to do? We'll let the politicians debate that, and we're going to let the courts debate that. The Supreme Court is going to rule on that sometime this summer. It's still possible that Biden decides to do another extension, another forbearance on this debt. I doubt it. It doesn't look too likely given the fact that the emergency declaration is expiring, but it's possible. And I will say there's clearly still enough cash in the system today to soak up these payments initially. But this is something we're going to have to watch because it is going to affect what people are spending their money on. It is going to affect economic growth as we now have to start taking $155 billion a year and putting it back in to paying off student debt. So we'll wrap it up there for now. As always, really appreciate you spending time. If you have questions, please don't hesitate to give us a call at the office at 515-273-1333. Or, of course, you can visit us on the web at www.insightwealthgroup.com. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to touching base with you again soon. Take care. Securities offered through RTA Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, NFA. Investment advisory services offered through RTA Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment firm. 